0: The world's biggest miner signs a nickel supply agreement with Tesla. Welcome to KIKO Roundtable. I'm your host, Michael McRae. Editor Niels Christensen is in. Hi, Niels. Hey, everybody. Happy weekends. KIKO correspondent, Paul Harris. Hi, Paul. Hi. Hi, everybody. Every week, there's been a big headline in the EV space. The editor of Battery Materials Research Review, or I should say the editor of Battery Materials Review, the head of research for West Beck Capital's Volta Energy Transition Fund is going to explain it all. It's Matt Fernley. Matt, welcome to KIKO.
1: Thanks very much for having me, guys. I appreciate it.
0: Matt, what's your path to battery materials?
1: Um, oh, dear. Um, raking up lo- quite a lot of uh, skeletons there. Um, I'm a geo by training. Uh, I've been an investment banker for 20 years, uh, primarily uh, specializing in the commodity space, uh, industrial materials. Um, and then several years ago, I was doing some work on the battery space and battery materials and... Uh, Trying to find out some stuff on battery materials, really couldn't find anything. Uh, There's one site in Australia, there's one site in Canada, there's one site on nickel, there's one site on cobalt. Nothing really pulled it together. So I thought, well, this is going to be a really big space. Um, I should probably start doing something in it. Um, And that's how Battery Materials Review was born. It's really a a way to pull all of the information that portfolio managers, investors, analysts, uh, and corporates will need uh on a monthly basis so yeah that's that's really uh that's really what i get up to uh
0: matt's uh battery materials review is a contributor to kitco and we welcome to look at his material it's been a great analysis on the space let's turn to macro neils what's weighing down gold
2: um well at first i wanted to say thank god we're talking about battery metals because gold is just (laughs) terrible to talk about right now um (laughs) Let's talk about anything but gold. Uh, no, it's I. You know what? I honestly don't know um, what's weighing down gold. Okay, I do know it's it's U.S. dollar, um, which is really surprising because, like, on Tuesday, um, bond yields, uh, real yields fell to their lowest point since the start of the year, and gold did nothing. Like this should be if this was going to be a positive environment for gold. Um, this would be it. Uh, the only thing that's holding it back right now is the US dollar. And it's and it's really surprising at how big of an uh, impact that is having on the price of gold.
0: Oh.
3: Do you think there's a, an element, you know, summertime, people were pretty much locked up the past uh, 12, 18 months. So summertime's here, we can go out again. So to hell with the markets, let's just go and have a summer.
2: I would say yes, but then you look at equities and they're just on a tear. I just, you know, I think... I think the reality is that, you know, why buy gold when the S&P is the S&P 500 is is hitting record highs? I just I don't think there's that that uh, need for gold right now. You know, we're not worried about inflation. We're focused on uh, interest rates that are going to be going up in two years. We're focused on tapering um, that, you know, when it starts, it'll fall back to where we were less than a decade ago. Um, but we're we're and and not only that, but we're also focused on this gap between central banks. On Thursday, you had the ECB come out and basically say that uh interest rates are going nowhere until they get inflation at 2%. And it's been so long since they've had inflation at 2% that I don't even know when rates will be going up again. Um, you compare that though to the Fed, and they keep talking about tapering and and interest rate hikes. Um, even if they're two years from now, there, there's this this divergence in monetary policy that's supporting U.S. dollar, and that is is the headwind to gold. Um, I think there is a little bit of of summertime blues, the the, the lulls for for gold, but usually by this time um, we're gearing up for for October or for uh, August and September, and that's you know seasonally this is usually a bullish time for, for the precious metals.
0: The answer is uh, actually the opening of the Olympics, uh, Paul. Uh, we have uh, Japan that's uh, taking all the headlines right now, and we have been reminded that uh, debt doesn't matter. Japan, of course, being a heavily indebted country. Uh, Niels, quickly, what does the Kiko Gold Survey say?
2: Um, Wall Street, they're bearish. There's 60% of Wall Street analysts are uh, bearish on gold in the short term, which isn't surprising. Um, however, retail investors are still there. They're 55% bullish. So you have this, you have this, this divergence as well between uh, Main Street and, and Wall Street. Uh, it's it's going to be really really interesting. Uh, just one uh, really quickly, uh, uh, we got a report today from TD uh, Securities. They are actually now they have a tactical short on gold now. They started shorting at eighteen hundred. Um, they're looking for gold to fall to uh, seventeen thirty uh, in the next month. Uh, their stop losses at eighteen fifty. So, uh, yeah, it's, I think this is the, the, the bears are coming out to play right now.
0: Uh, Niels, uh, sticking with, uh, how would you say kind of a balanced, uh, precious metal with, uh, you know, with a foot and in industrial and also a foot as being, um, uh, precious, uh, silver or according to metal focus, I should say, uh, they're saying that, uh, silver's price weakness is exaggerated.
2: Yeah, so not only, this actually was really interesting. So Metals Focus came out with their report saying that basically gold is undervalued, this weakness is is exaggerated. Uh, This week we saw uh, silver prices fall below $25 an ounce, and then prices just sort of uh, bounce right back up. Um, Along them and along with uh, uh, Commerce Bank, um, they're actually bullish on silver as well. And they said that uh, it's overdone on the downside it's for for a lot of these guys it's hard to be bearish on silver when you know there's going to be so much uh, industrial demand a lot of guys are talking just about uh, solar panels I mean even even if the silver load in solar panels is going to be lower going forward just the demand for solar panels in general as, as we deal with this this green uh, energy revolution um, is going to increase demand overall so it's yeah it's for a lot of people, it's it's really difficult to be bearish on on silver in in this medium term.
0: Uh, I want to bring in uh, Matt on this discussion. Uh, Niels uh, Capital Economics uh, took the boot to copper this week.
2: Yeah, um, I, you know, I'm I'm not surprised. So they're actually saying that uh, copper is going to uh, end the year at uh, eight thousand a ton. Um, it's already. It's already fallen uh, f- about 14% from its all time highs uh, above 10,000 a ton. Um, and they're saying it has uh, another 14% to go. I'd love to hear Matt's thoughts on this too. I, I, a lot of people are talking about this Chinese, uh, uh, this, the China uh, releasing its strategic reserves and that's impacting the price. I don't see that now. Like I see that I, I was, it, it made sense a week ago. Um, but I figured markets would price that in already, and we'd start seeing, you know, at some point, um, if Chinese release those strategic reserves, they got to fill them back up again. They got to buy more copper. So I don't see that as a, a, a really long-term uh, fundamental justification for the for the price action that we've seen.
1: Well, I, I think the thing that's that's worrying the market about China to some extent is the fixed asset investment side of things, and there've been a couple of analyst notes out in the last couple of months which have flagged. The slowdown in the Chinese fixed asset investment. And obviously, that's been a huge consumer of copper over the last 10 to 15 years. And if that starts to sort of fall away, and I think the other point from a macro point of view is if you look at sort of IP cycles and genuine cycles all over the place, they look much closer to the top than to the bottom. Um, and that's not a great place to be, you know, going into copper. Um so, you know, from a macro point of view, if I look at sort of inventories, global exchange inventories, bonded warehouse inventories, the price looks overextended at the moment. Do I think it's going to go down as much as is as flagged in that note? I hope not, but uh, <laughs> I, I wouldn't rule it out if we move into an IP down cycle. Paul? I'll
3: just uh, throw a data point into this conversation. latest figures out of the Shanghai Futures Exchange. They're under 100,000 tons, fallen under 100,000 tons again. So uh, there does seem to be a lot of buying going on in China still.
1: I think the the issue that we're seeing is that a lot of that material has gone out of the um, Shanghai Futures Exchange and gone straight into the bonded warehouse inventories. Um, Now, yes, they are all starting to decline now, but there's a, a, quite a lot of material sitting in those bonded warehouse inventories, which needs to get used up before we start to get excited. I, I, I estimate coppers looking at about 13 days of supply currently, and the lows are sort of round about seven or eight days of supply. So, you know, there's no justification, or I'd say there's no fundamental justification for a copper price above four bucks uh, on this level of global inventories.
3: Paul. I was thinking about this as my number of the week, but uh, this could be, this, this will be good for copper. China's just done, launched its fastest ever, the fastest train in the world, the magnetic levitation train. It goes at something like 350 kilometers an hour, or even faster than that. Uh, and There's only one track, there's about 30 kilometers of track. So they've got a lot of track to build to be able to deploy this train. And uh, that's going to take a, a warehouse full of copper, I imagine.
0: Niels.
2: Um, I just wanted to ask Matt, I mean, at, at you know, if copper stays above four, uh, $4, um, do you think that's enough to get like sort of the scrap supply into this? Cause that's what a lot of people you know, like there's not a lot of supply for copper and I'm just sort of wondering where that price flexibility, especially on the scrap side comes yeah. in and how much of a difference that makes.
1: I, I mean, I think it's a difficult one. I, I, I don't look at copper. I must admit, I don't look at copper as closely as I used to. Um, so I'm not. You know, a hundred percent fait. but certainly the availability of scrap has been one of the things that's kept the copper market in surplus over the last uh, few years, when uh, supply was was supply growth was quite weak. So I, I do I do worry a little bit about the supply of scrap in terms of the supply demand situation. But from a longer term perspective, I mean. Paul talked about the, the, um, the bullet train there. I think from a longer term perspective, I'm also quite excited about the perspe- uh, the potential for the renewable space. Um, there's a lot of copper used in offshore wind, um, and that's going to be a, a big driver of demand in the latter part of the decade. So, you know, there's there's things to get excited about in the copper market, just not quite now. Paul?
3: I, I just back checked
0: 373 miles an hour. Brilliant. Uji Mori has conceded and Pedro Castillo has been named Peru's president-elect for six weeks after polarizing vote. Castillo has been making moves to calm the markets, which are concerned about Castillo's socialist roots. In June, he said he wanted to keep the head of the central bank, Julio Belarde, if he is confirmed as the winner. Paul, your thoughts on uh, Castillo uh, finally being uh, named as president-elect
3: well, it took about a month, but it's a, it's a good thing. And um, now the dust is starting to settle and we'll see, see what, uh, what's what. Um, one immediate news piece related to that, uh, Newmont put its uh, results out yesterday, second quarter results out yesterday. And within that, they said that um, they're not going to make a decision, a funding decision on the Yanoculture Sulfides project until December. So uh, their, the original plan, I think, was to, to green light that project over the summer but they're now obviously going to take a few months to see how what the lie of the land is under a castillo administration he takes office on the 28th of july
0: Niels,
2: just wanted to ask I me mean, do you like i know this this is always in south america like this has been a big issue i know it was in colombia you know just this this um social license to to mine but i'm just sort of wondering i mean for a company for a country like peru Paul, do you think that they can afford to really take a hard line with mining companies? I mean, it's just it's so integral to, to the economy.
3: Well, it, it's a very good question, Niels. And uh, one side of the question doesn't necessarily marry up with the answer. And the short answer is probably not. But that won't necessarily stop uh, people in particular regions opposing mining projects. Um, The not-in-my-backyard syndrome is alive and kicking in Latin America as it is in uh, North America. And Europe? For various different reasons. You know, the the countries in South America generally do need the foreign income earnings that a a big mine will provide. But that's not necessarily first and foremost on people's Mm minds in the particular communities where a mine is looking to be built.
0: There were some exciting uh, developments, uh, massive financings uh, to advanced projects. Uh, but uh, we're going to hear from Paul on that in just a minute. But first, our sponsor. The Cisco Mining is drilling out its flagship Windfall Gold Deposit, one of the highest-grade resource-stage gold projects in Canada with a world-class scale. If you follow the junior space, you have seen Windfall's headlines. Windfall has announced a series of bonanza grades from drilling a new discovery one kilometre north of Windfall recently. It has also held the distinction of being Canada's biggest drill program. Windfall is located in Quebec, a tier one mining jurisdiction operated by a Cisco's team of trusted and experienced mining executives. A preliminary economic assessment on the project estimated that the first seven years of full operation would produce 300,000 ounces of gold per year at an average grade of 8.1 gram per tonne gold and an all sustaining cost of $610 an ounce. With a capital expenditure of 544 million Canadian. Windfall is estimated to generate 8.2 billion of gross revenue and 1.7 billion in taxes and generate 400 direct jobs and 200 indirects. That's a Cisco mining, and we thank them for their support. Paul, can you bring us up to date on Yamana?
3: Yes, Yamana Gold uh, announced that it's taken a development decision for its Wasamac gold project in Quebec this week, uh, Quebec and Canada, of course. Um, it acquired the project early this year, um, and after updating its historical feasibility study with a higher throughput rate, the company plans to build a 7,000 tons per day operation at an estimated initial capital cost of 416 million US dollars. Wasmac hosts reserves of 1.91 million ounces of gold, grading 2.56 grams per ton, and it will have an initial 10-year life um, with an average annual production of about 200,000. Ounce of a year in its initial years.
0: Two big financings this week let's start with Marathon and their 185 million raise for Valentine
3: Yes uh, Marathon entered into a non-binding indicative term sheet with spot, spot resource lending for a senior secured project financing 185 million US dollars as you mentioned. Um, a March feasibility study detailed production of about 170,000 ounces a year um, for 10 years. At, um, at its Valentine's Gold project in, uh, in Newfoundland. Um, Marathon raised $50 million Canadian dollars via private placement in June um, towards that. Um, and it needs to get a little bit more financing, um, which it's thinking of another equity raise and perhaps uh, equipment leasing uh, before going ahead with that uh, project, which has a $240 million overall capital cost.
0: Rio 2 announces uh, funding or a financing for its Phoenix between 125 and 135 million. Paul,
3: yes, Rio 2 has got a, an open pit uh, gold oxide project in, America, in the American region of Chile uh, called Phoenix. Um, so it put together a, a package, as you say, 125 to 135 million US, which includes a 50 million dollar gold purchase agreement with Wheat and Precious Metals, 50 to 60 million dollars of senior debt with uh, BNP Paribas. And there'll be uh, about $30 million of equity raises with uh, the public in general and with Wheaton specifically. Um, the pre-feasibility study there estimates an initial capex of about $110 million for a 20,000 tonne-a-day operation to produce about 100,000 ounces in a year of gold for more than 10 years.
0: Let's stay in Latin America. Um, and I think there's a Lundin connection here, Paul. Uh, Bluestone sees an 88% increase to its Cerro Balance uh, measured resource.
3: Yeah, there's been uh, quite a bit of uh, news from uh, Lundin-related companies this week. Bluestone Resources updated its uh, mineral resource estimate for Cerro Blanco. It's a gold project in Guatemala. Um, The total ounces had a slight increase to about 3.1 million ounces measured and indicated. Um, But the the big news of the the announcement was that uh, an 88% increase to the measured resource. The company did a lot of uh, infield drilling and upgraded resources. Um, so, the measured resource has grown 88% to 2.4 million ounces of gold and 10.4 million ounces of silver. Uh, Bluestone is looking at building an open pit gold mine there.
0: And let's swing all the way up north uh, to the Golden Triangle. Uh, Skina posts a uh, pre feasibility study for its Escay Creek with a 56% IRR.
3: Yes, Skina has been uh, hitting the news quite a bit this year. It keeps putting out drill results, uh, high grade drill results, keeps growing the resource there. And now it's a much-anticipated pre-feasibility study, uh, gold-silver project in British Columbia. Um, So they're looking at average annual production of about 249,000 ounces a year of gold and more than 7 million ounces a year of silver for about 10 years. Um, And that project would yield an after-tax internal rate of return of 56% um, of 1.4-year payback, uh, following an initial capital cost of $381 million. The company's got about, has uh, just started a 35,000 meter drilling program. They're looking at doing the feasibility in the first quarter of next year. Um, so this project looks like it's going to continue to grow and grow.
0: There's been two big names in uh, the Copper Junior space who have been really enjoying a run just because of uh, the excitement around uh, the copper, at least uh, for the initial part of 2021. Maybe you could start first with uh, Philo Paul.
3: So Fila Mining drilled its deepest hole to date at the Fila de Sol copper project in San Juan, in Argentina, which in addition to being a 200 meter step-out hole from previous drilling, also hit mineralization 250 meters below any previous drilling. Drilling returned 1,378 meters, grading 0.45% copper, 0.29 grams per tonne gold, 6 grams per tonne silver, for a 0.71 copper equivalent grade and that includes 676 meters at a 0.92 percent copper equivalent great hole there for philo
0: speaking of the Lundines, uh just down the road uh from their fruta del norte that's a uh, Lundine golds or solaris and uh, also a friend of the podcast daniel earl and uh, they had a discovery uh they're naming or they're locating it as being a uh, rincia east paul
3: Yes, uh, a lot of the drill results from so far Park in the Central, and they've expanded that and, and uh, done lots of good things there. So this was the first result that uh, they've come out of the Varinsa Wur- Wur- East area. So they're claiming it as a new discovery. Um, the first hole collared about uh, thirteen hundred meters east of the Varinsa Wur- Wur- Central target, and it was drilled to a depth of about one thousand two hundred meters. The company reported the first section of 222 meters. The rest of it's to in the assay lab. Uh, and that 320 meters graded 0.3% copper, 0.02% molybdenum, and a little bit of gold as well for a 0.46% copper equivalent. Now, the, the relevance or the importance of this hole, um, is that, um, if, if they, the company is going to subsequently start drilling from Windsor East towards Winter Central. And if they can, uh, um, join that up, the potential there is for a, a super pit. So, and really good things on the economics. So it's getting, a... Can, Continues to be very exciting in Marinsa for Solaris.
0: We just uh, posted a video uh, interview with the uh, CEO Daniel Earl. Uh, that's just uh, gone up on uh, Kiko, so I invite you to take a look at that interview where he talks about his uh, discovery. Australia gold miner Evolution Mining is paying Northern Star resources just under 300 million US for Eastern Goldfields assets in Western Australia. 300 million again, uh, one of the big numbers that occurred this week in the M&A space. Northern Star still has lots of room to run. The company plans to increase production by one quarter over the next five years and to hit 2 million ounces a year with the potential to knock off Newcrest Mining as ASXs. Biggest producer, that according to Financial Review. And a last story, and I think this will be a great story to bring back Matt. BHP enters into a nickel supply agreement with Tesla. BHP will supply Tesla with nickel from its Nickel West asset in Western Australia, which the miner describes as being one of the most sustainable and lowest cost emission nickel producers in the world. Look forward to seeing a lot of these words, sustainable and low carbon emission in pretty much any news release you're seeing these days. The amount of nickel being supplied was undisclosed. Reading from the news release here, in addition to the supply agreement, BHP, Tesla will collaborate on ways to make the battery supply chain more sustainable with a focus on end-to-end raw material traceability using the blockchain, technical exchange for battery raw materials production, and the promotion of the importance of sustainability in the resource sector, including identifying partners who are most aligned with BHP and Tesla principles and battery value chains. Paul?
3: Yes, I'll just add on to that with the nickel. Um, Norilsk um, announced that it's, uh, it claims it's got the first carbon neutral nickel certified and uh, it's now selling that. I think it's, uh, um, and, and that's going to be tracked by some kind of blockchain um, thing as well. So people will be
1: able to... I assume that's from its Finnish smelter, is it, that, that operates off hydroelectric?
3: No, that's, that's from uh, from Russia. Um, what the company said in its release was they've got a whole bunch of carbon credits from somewhere and they're basically allocating them to that nickel. And okay. got, I think it was Ernst & Young to certify that that's all bona fide. Nice.
0: <laughs> uh, Matt, uh, going back uh, to uh, BHP and Tesla, uh, we're just seeing a lot more of these deals in the space.
1: I mean, I think we're seeing a lot of offtake agreements and, and uh, you know, nominally, um, that's a positive, um, the concern, I mean, what really worries me is that, uh, offtake agreements guarantee you volumes, but they don't guarantee you prices. And in an environment where we're talking about a very, very tight supply demand situation over five, six, seven years, uh, you're likely to see prices rise significantly. And you, you know, how is that going to impact the economics of EV production? Paul?
3: i just want to you know re- refer back to what the previous statement um an offtake as you say guarantees prices it doesn't guarantee source though does it so uh, under an offtake agreement if, if if the supplier cannot supply from his own mine, has to buy in the open market and supply that at whatever the cost mm. um but the ev space and the renewable space I, I imagine clients like tesla are also buying because of the source because that source is carbon I- neutral or low carbon or has some other ESG benefits. So if you can't supply, then uh, that puts the supply in a very difficult position because you can't just go buy off the shelf.
1: I I mean, I don't see that as a huge issue for BHP in Western Australia, but for a a lot of, for instance, the lithium offtake agreements that we're seeing uh, being announced over the last couple of weeks, that is a concern. And for the Western world and the US automakers, sustainability is an increasingly important thing. We're seeing a lot of uh, producers now or developers looking to do life cycle analyses to to basically show off their green credentials. And it's increasingly important for the automakers. And I think it's one of the reasons why the uh, potential nickel pig iron into mats, into batteries solution that's being touted in Indonesia is not going to work for the Western world automakers because it's a very, very uh, power intensive, carbon intensive, dirty business, even whether the chemistry works or not. So I I think increasingly, you're absolutely right, Paul, um, sustainability of sources is going to be key for, for the automakers going forward in this space.
0: Um, I see Niels had a question, but just a point on that, Matt, uh, the one thing that um, always perplexes me on that, though, and this is just uh, using benchmarks, uh, you know, uh, benchmarks uh, statistics, it's just that China is going to be building out what the estimate by the end of this decade, about uh, two thirds of uh, battery supply uh, with uh, first tier, it seems like, it seems like you have to buy from China, because they're just going to have all of the resources, and they're going to have all of those plants, and uh, they're just going to be, they're just going to be the giant in the space.
1: Yes and no. I mean, I think that we've already seen huge investment in Europe. Um, well, announced investments in Europe in battery factories. Um, it's clearly not joined up in, in, in um, from the point of view of the raw materials. We've started to see announcements in the US. It's not enough yet, um, but the US has been much slower on EV take up than than the Europeans have. Uh, so I would imagine it will accelerate over time um but as you say michael the um chinese are dominating in terms of not so much the raw material supply but the processed material supply that's where they're really dominating um because they're still importing a lot of their lithium from australia from from latin america they're importing a lot of their nickel concentrate from indonesia from from everywhere around the world copper etc so it's really the processing they're dominating in um, and and you know the western world really needs to strategically invest in raw materials supply if they're not going to end up buying a lot of it from China. But with a lot of these blockchain solutions that are coming out now, uh, I believe the automakers feel that they can uh, check the provenance of, of what they're buying. Um, and they will be you know, serious about this going forward, I think. Niels?
2: I just wanted to ask, Matt. Um... You know, with all of these these uh, agreements coming, does the the battery metal space and these producers um, do they run the risks of making the mistake that gold companies did? You know, when they were hedging, you know, back in the last bull market, they had these massive hedges uh, on their on their gold, and then the price skyrocketed. They spent money, uh, you know, yeah. t- buying back these hedges, and then the price collapsed. And you know, we spent yeah. what six years. Try to clean up balance sheets, and I'm just sort of wondering, like, did did you know does BHP run the risk of, of that?
1: I, I think in, in many ways, um, the immaturity of the market bails out the producers because apart from a nickel, mm. there is no globally recognised futures market for any of these materials. So there's no opportunity for these producers to hedge, and I think what? the other the other point is that everybody knows the battery material prices are going to go up. It's just by how much. And no producer worth their salt is going to try and lock in prices at this level because with the amount of you, you know demand growth we're going to see in these markets, I mean, we get excited if the copper market goes up sort of 20 or 30 percent in 10 years. We only see these markets increase by multiples. So, you know, no mining management team is going to want itself locked into to the prices that you see at the moment. Uh, if you think about the super cycle, you know, commodity prices went up four or five times during that sort of five to 10 year period. You know, no producer is going to get excited with prices going up one time. Or, or two times, uh, they, they don't want to be locked in. I think also a lot of lessons were learned in the super cycle with with hedging and and streaming at uh, at uh, reduced prices, etc. So I, I I don't envisage that being an issue in in this cycle for the bulk of battery materials. Paul, oh.
3: uh, yeah, but on a similar theme uh, there, I was Going to say, you know, at some point the the battery space, the battery material space will get so energized. Let's say that, that the paper market is going to really take off as well. Yeah. Um, Matt's referenced the supercycle. Copper became a the copper the paper for copper contracts became very very widely and broadly traded. Uh, traders for everything got in onto that. So it could be more difficult for the consumers or more expensive for the consumers to actually get the the copper they need because the the paper the 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 cycling rate of the paper market is just going to really take off.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think certainly it's an immature market. I mean, we've seen announcements about two lithium contracts being launched this month, um, the LME and um, uh, an exchange in China, whose name I can't remember, Um, someone stainless steel or something. But anyway, um, and to add to the fast markets uh, contract that was launched in May. So, you know, lithium starting, I'm not convinced about lithium as a contract um given the fact that what a lot of people get wrong in these industries is these are specialty chemical products they're not commodity products so you you know no cathode maker is going to use the spec that sits on the lme or that sits on the fast market they're going to use their own spec that they talk about with their with their producers Um, so You know, I I am a little bit wary about whether the contracts will take off. But I think from a financial point of view, people want to get exposure to these markets. They want to be able to trade futures in these markets. Um, So whether it will be an indicative market or whether it will be an actual market where, you know, the producers and consumers are active from a physical point of view, I don't know. Niels?
2: Um, So I wanted to ask like a, just a really basic question because I'm I'm just getting into the into the battery space. Um is there a priority of these metals? Like what what is how would you how would you prioritize these metals? Like how would you rank them? in the importance when it comes to a battery like is is lithium more important than nickel is you know where does (sighs) cobalt come in where does you know what a stinker of a question
1: (laughs) what a stinker of the question okay (laughs) uh there are two um in in the lithium ion okay uh battery 101 so lithium ion is the preferred battery for electric vehicles currently. It's not the only battery that is around, but it's the preferred battery for lithium uh, for electric vehicles. Within that, there are two types of chemistry that are prevalent. So one of them is uh, what we call LFP batteries, which is uh, lithium ion phosphate batteries. And that's quite a low cost battery. Um, And then there's the higher cost battery, which is what we call a ternary battery, which means it's got basically a a triple cathode. So um, the, the most common is nickel cobalt manganese. Um, but increasingly um, because of issues with cobalt the industry is moving towards more of a nickel manganese cathode and then obviously tesla in the u.s has used what's called an nca cathode, so nickel cobalt aluminium so so ternary's batteries we can lump all of that sort of um, stuff with base metals together Um, so in all uh, lithium-ion batteries you need lithium and you need graphite now The type of lithium you use varies, and without getting into a lot of detail, um, you tend to use lithium carbonate, which is derived primarily from from brine, um, to produce LFP batteries. And you produce lithium hydroxide, which is more derived from processing of hard rock lithium in uh, the more advanced ternary batteries, so the 622 chemistry and the 811 chemistry um so you've got to use lithium and graphite in all of them um and then obviously in the lfp you use iron phosphate and then in the ncm you use various elements of nickel cobalt manganese and aluminium um so you know lithium and 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 uh, graphite are the most important in terms of of usage in the space nickel uh is Uh, of increasing importance for some of the reasons we already discussed Um, and manganese is the most widely misunderstood um, element if you will in the space because a lot of people think that manganese is used in the steel industry and there's loads of it and there's never going to be a shortage but the problem is the high purity manganese that's used in these these high purity ternary batteries is exceedingly rare it's a tiny tiny market and finding ore bodies that are suitable for upgrading to high purity manganese is very very difficult and it's not just about whether they are chemically suitable, it's whether they're economically suitable. Uh, When we talk about the the materials that are going into batteries, we're talking at the parts per million levels of concentrations. Sometimes, for instance, for iron and nickel batteries, we're talking about the parts per billions level of, of concentrations of impurities. So it's really, really important that you find the right asset, because if it's got too much impurities, it's going to cost you so much to take out the impurities. Um, that it's not going to be economic to supply it. So, yeah, that's that's battery materials 101. Um, everybody's probably got glazed eyes now. <laughs> I'm like, oh, shut up.
0: <laughs> no, I mean, I love it uh, looking at um, – I, I there was a report a while ago just looking at uh, the different uh, battery chemistries and their different types – and then the different, um, you know, the different elements that are added to those batteries, and it's all of those trade-offs, you know, because then you get uh, longer duration, or you get a higher energy density, or something like that. Uh, but then your price of cobalt starts to spike, your cost of nickel starts to spike, and so then you're making other types of substitutions, and then you're making other choices about uh, your batteries and uh, what's uh, what's economic for you.
1: Yes, and and that very much comes into what you want from your electric vehicle at the end of the day. So, for instance. Since the LFP battery has worked in China, where range is not so much of an issue. Uh, so it's got lower energy density <clears throat> or lower range. In the US, in North America, range is absolutely key because obviously it's a big country, um, and uh, therefore you're needing to use higher energy density batteries uh, like the NCM batteries and Tesla's NCA batteries. So there's going to be a real trade-off um, going forward um, and interestingly lfp was dead and buried two years ago and it's made a big return to the market because of the concerns about supply of nickel cobalt and manganese into the market so i, I think you know there's there's improvements happening all the time over the last five years most of the improvements have been in the cathode side uh, increasingly now uh, producers starting to focus on anodes they're adding silicon to to graphite which is really improving the electrical properties of of the batteries and uh, allowing lfp uh, to be a more effective battery um, for fast charging and, and higher energy density so um, you know there's there's a lot of um improvements still happening in the industry
0: and just to add to that, um, I believe that uh, Tesla was talking about an iron-based battery, um, but that would just be for people that are not owning cars, but rather part of a rental fleet, uh, where um, you know, uh, how would you say uh, the um, uh, the you would have a much shorter distance and much shorter driving distance, but it just wouldn't really matter with a fleet uh, vehicle. Uh, Niels,
2: well, I just I sort of wanted to ask that too. Like, I mean, the, the, the technology is sort of always changing. I've heard like. You know, maybe a zinc battery or a copper battery. I mean, is, you know, w- what's your idea of the space of of all of this technology uh, sort of competing yeah. with each other? Yeah, like, he's it, he's it's working his way to it a... right now, but is that, <laughs> is that
0: so, so... careful, Matt? He's working his way to a gold based battery. So, uh... <laughs>
2: silver, silver. I <laughs> yeah, I get well, that Maybe, I'll, maybe I'll, silver. I'll get with silver battery.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I think. Um, People forget there are different applications. So electric vehicle batteries is one area. Uh, Stationary storage batteries is another area. So stationary storage around renewables or or home storage. And there are some very interesting chemistries in that side of things. And I think the zinc battery you're talking about is more a stationary storage battery. We also see iron flow batteries, vanadium flow batteries um, in that space. Um, And It's an interesting trade off. Lithium batteries is the chemistry uh, of choice at the moment, but actually, it's not the best chemistry for all applications within stationary storage. And longer duration batteries, like you get from vanadium batteries, or chromium batteries, or iron batteries, are actually more suitable for several applications within stationary storage. So, it is possible that we'll see some. Demand moving from lithium-ion into other other battery formulations over time for stationary storage. Within lithium-ion, sorry, within electric vehicles, uh, the focus for the next stage is really these solid state batteries. So it's effectively a similar cathode, but using solid lithium metal as the anode. Um, Now, I think that's a great idea in a lab, um, and I, I think you know, there's a, uh, we've been talking about these coming in the next two years for about the last five years. So we'll wait and see if it happens. But the thing that really scares me about it is you're using still using a lot of lithium, and based on our supply demand forecasts, there's going to be a structural shortage of lithium over the next five years. So I'm not quite sure how much your your solid state battery is is really going to help the situation. Uh, and on top of that um the whatever it is 150 200 billion dollars that's been invested in in battery factories has been bat- invested in lithium-ion battery factories so it could take a you know take a long time to transition transition over to other other uh, bases other battery technologies oh.
3: Gang thing will buy every lithium deposit in the world and bring them all into production no problem
0: uh, yeah. yeah, well, I, I, that was my next question because I wanted to ask that of Matt. Um, I, I've been leading with, uh, you know, a Gangfeng story, it seems like, uh, uh, through <laughs> all of 2021 yeah. because of yeah. uh, just the, the voracious m and uh, that uh, that uh, company is doing. Uh, Insight into that company, I know they're uh, the leading or they're uh, the uh, as far as a lithium producer and a lithium miners go, Matt.
1: I mean, for me, Gangfeng is doing what every auto company out there. Should be doing and should have been doing for the last two years. So, that what they're doing basically is ensuring that the next tier of lithium operations gets funded. And, um, you know, I think we calculated something like $110 billion has been raised for EVs or allocated for EVs in the last three years. Um, Something like less than $20 billion has been raised for raw materials. It takes two or three times as long to build a mine as it does to build an EV plant. Um, You know, Gang Feng recognises that. They realise that the industry has been capital starved over the last three years. It needs a lot more investment. The autos companies are not realising this. And and they have to start reacting very rapidly now um, if there's not to be a very very significant price appreciation, which, quite frankly, could make electric vehicles uneconomic for, for the autos OEMs going forward.
3: Paul, Matt, can I can I just ask you to you know compare and contrast what Gangfeng's done and what Changi did, uh, the, you know, the year or two previously? Is it just does it just come down to market timing? You know, Changi went on a on a bit of a spree of strategic investments, acquisitions, etc. Got its timing wrong, liquidity issues, didn't end, you know hasn't been very good for Chanky. Jan Feng waited that extra year or two, the market's improved, and it seems to be coming into a good market and everything's smelling of roses. I
1: I mean, I think at the beginning, four or five years ago, Tianqi and Gan Feng's strategies were the same, which was tie up as much overseas lithium as you can. Uh, Unfortunately, Tianqi made that top of the cycle SQM acquisition, and uh, that came around to to bite them in the backside. Um, And then they've been a net disposer of assets over the last two years as they tried to 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 plug that hole in the balance sheet um i I think you know going forward you will start to see Tianqi buying again um now that they have the ability to access capital markets and, and 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 they've repaired that hole in the balance sheet it was just bad timing from their point of view that um uh they they bought SQM right at the top of the cycle. Um, They had to call off their Hong Kong listing, um, and that left them in a little bit of a liquidity hole. Um, But uh, I I think you'll see the the big Chinese uh, operators starting to buy a lot more.
0: Thank you. Are we in a super cycle, Matt?
1: Yes. Yes, we are in a super cycle for battery materials. Uh, I I define a super cycle as a, a situation where you see a structural demand event tied to a, a situation where you have a tight supply situation and and this is the very definition of a super cycle so yes i do believe that we are in a, a very substantial super cycle for all of these battery related metals
0: i want to get to our number of the week but i just want to have a little fun here matt i want to do a speed round uh, can you give us uh the uh, top of your head the uh, thoughts uh as we just go down some metals please sure okay
1: cobalt you on fest <laughs> you want a little bit more? Uh, okay, so yesterday's metal. Um, everybody's uh, thrifting cobalt out of, out of battery technologies. Uh, there's a lot of supply that can potentially come on in the DRC, um, other areas of the world. Um, yesterday's metal. Graphite. Uh, lots of potential, lots of unanswered questions. So as I said, graphite is one of the key Um, metals that's used or or materials rather that's used in electric vehicle batteries at the moment. Um, Unfortunately, there's very little visibility of what's going on in China. It's a bit of a black hole, if you excuse the horrific pun. Um, And, you know, we really don't know what the situation is. The the other issue with graphite is um, from the mining supply point of view, there's lots of projects out there. Um, The issue is really that the capital intensity in the downstream area is very high, so there are not a lot of projects out there in the in the anode production area. So we really don't don't have a good view as to what's going on in graphite in terms of supply, but in terms of demand, there's a big event coming. Lithium, um, absolutely vital, absolutely vital for this generation of batteries and the next generation of batteries, and you know one of the tightest supply demand environments out of any of the battery metals manganese misunderstood as i said earlier everybody looks at the steel market they go there's loads of manganese around there's no problem at all high purity manganese um, tiny number of assets that are viable for high purity manganese production both chemically and economically nickel um, potentially very exciting um, the market is overly worried about the, uh, nickel pig iron into matte methodology, which I don't think will work for Western world OEMs. And I'm not convinced it will work chemically anyway. Um, and I see a lot of potential in the nickel market. Rarerists. Um, interesting area again, uh, Very, very important to electric vehicles, um, more more for the magnets for them, for the batteries, so for the engines, uh, and also very important for renewables for for the wind turbines as well. Um, For me, it's not really a shortage of raw materials. It's more a shortage of processing. That's where the bottleneck is. Mm -hmm. We need to see an investment in processing from the Western world governments and um, support for the industry. From Western world governments, if they want to build up a viable uh, supply line outside China,
0: and a metal that we don't often hear in the battery material space, but uh, certainly in the um, how you say in the uh, non-moving space, and that would be vanadium.
1: So vanadium is a bit of a dark horse. Um, up till now, it's very much been a cyclical metal uh, used in the steel industry, um, and I think it will remain that way for another one to two years or so. Um, vanadium. Uh redox flow batteries are a growing area within stationary storage. Um and I think if that moves the way we think it's going to move, then demand for vanadium will roof. Um, but it's a few years out yet.
0: Let's turn to our number of the week. Matt, we always start with our guest. What's your number?
1: My number is seven. So seven, um, because based on my analysis. That's the number of times the lithium demand will increase over the next 10 years. And it's also the number of green bushes or Atacama-sized lithium operations that need to be financed in the next 18 months if we're not to move into a very, very substantial structural supply-demand imbalance by 2025.
0: Paul, what's your number?
1: My
3: number is one5 1.5 years, to be precise. And that's the amount that the life expectancy in the US declined last year um, due to COVID according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Life expectancy fell from 78.8 years in 2019 to 77.3 years last year.
0: Neil's your number?
3: Uh, Mine's mine's pretty,
2: mine's personal, Uh, it's four. Uh, I turned 40 on Tuesday. And uh my son turns four uh, this weekend.
0: <laughs> happy birthday to you! Yeah, happy birthday to you both in the uh, Christiansen family. There, uh, Niels. <laughs> Thank you very much. My birthday doesn't matter though because it's all focused on my son.
2: So yeah.
0: <laughs> I have another year number, and that's twelve years. Once again, that's twelve years. Uh, Las Perambalas. Uh, is in a 12-year drought. Uh, the mine accounts for nearly half of Antofagasta's copper production. Uh, Antofagasta, of course, is a top 10 copper producer. Uh, McKinsey estimates that 80% of copper production in Chile is already located in extremely high water-stressed and arid areas, and by 2040, it will be 100%. Uh, Antofagasta did put out a warning on a Las Perambales uh, just regarding the drought, which is said could possibly affect outlook. Paul?
3: Las Perambales.
0: <laughs>
3: i was
1: gonna say that but i was too polite
0: <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much paul uh that's it for us um matt uh any uh, news that's uh, going to be coming out of uh batter mitchell review should be aware of.
1: Uh should have a uh, a column going onto the site sometime in the next uh, couple of days i think
0: and uh, you can reach out to us. You can follow me at Michael McRae, Uh, That's MCCRAE. And Niels is at Niels underscore C. Paul is at CGS 2021 Gold. And Matt, how would you like people to get a hold of you?
1: Uh, just come through the website, come through the bathroommaterials.com website.
0: Terrific. If you like what you hear, tell a friend and don't forget to subscribe. Matt, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much for having me. This has been Kickle Roundtable. On behalf of Paul Harris, Niels Christensen and Matt Fernley, have a good weekend.